0: Zero is accounting software that has all the features small business owners need to run a business successfully. To help ensure business success, Zero also partners directly with accounting and bookkeeping firms, giving them a suite of tools and training to become Zero experts to help them and confidently advise businesses. Stay tuned to hear more from our sponsor Zero later in the episode. If you'd like to earn CPE credit for listening to this episode, Visit earmarkcpe.com, download the app, take a short quiz, and get your CPE certificate. Continuing education has never been so easy. And now, on to the episode. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Oh My Fraud! We got a true crime podcast, but our bad guys fill duffel bags with cash instead of filling them with severed heads. And today, we got one of my favorite fraud stories of all times. It involves booze, guns, steroids, and softball. So hello and welcome. I'm Greg Kite. And I'm Pappy Van Nuquist. <laughs>
1: Pleasure to be with you,
0: Greg. Caleb. Yes. Caleb Van Newquist. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, So, so we're just going to, we're just going to dive right into it with some real talk. So, I need to know what have you stolen from work? Like, it doesn't have to be your current employer, but I want to know what you have stolen from a job. And I, and I'm talking like items, not money. Right. And it can be little or it can be big. What have you stolen from work?
1: Okay. So, you, uh, since you're just a regular guy, I I, I don't believe I can invoke uh, my Fifth Amendment privilege. Um, and I, I don't know what the statute Correct. of limitations are on these things. So maybe I'm, I'm I'm wandering into a legal gray area. But in the spirit of good <laughs> podcasting, I'll answer your question. Yeah. So the first thing I remember stealing from an employer was beer. <laughs> Oddly enough, this is a show about hooch. That's awesome. Yeah. I, I worked at a steakhouse. I, it, was, it was like my first job. I was a dishwasher. My buddy's dad owned the place. Uh, I was 16. He was nearly 16. And we liked to party. And getting beer wasn't always easy. And so, you know, it was our option of last resort. It just so happened that we used this option a lot. <laughs> and so, uh, yeah, that is that, that, that was a thing. And then also when I was in college, I worked at a beer wholesaler, a distributor, and that was, you know, the, the, it was more beer than I'd ever seen in my life. I mean, to this day, except for maybe at, maybe the Coors brewery, There's a lot of beer there. Anyway, the point is <laughs> yeah. occasionally, um, and you know, the guys, the other guys that work there too, you know, the sales reps and the manager of the warehouse and stuff, they would, they would take beer home with them. And so we would occasionally, you know, take six packs or 12 packs or cases or <laughs> Whatever. Yeah. So, yeah. And yeah. I mean, that was, you know, I mean, in the technical definition, yeah, stealing. So there you have it. The rationalization was very easy for me because I felt my employers were getting way more than their pound of flesh out of me. Yeah.
0: Yeah. yeah. That's, that's awesome. And that's it, Well, first off, it's wild how closely that your little stories there mirror the case that we're going to be talking about today. Just you were much smaller scale than what they, they were. Yes. So, Caleb, in this episode, we're going to tell the story of Toby Kurtzinger and his nine buddies who pulled off the biggest bourbon heist in the history of bourbon heists. And people call it Pappy Gate. And the reason they call it Pappy Gate is because one of the types of booze that they stole was called Pappy Van Winkle, which is a very rare, very expensive uh, whiskey. And, and yeah, so they call it Pappy Gate. And I'll tell you, before we even launch yeah. this, I hate whenever anything is called like something gate. Drives me up a wall. But we will not be calling that here because I hate it. But here's what happened. I, like I gave the broad bro, broad strokes. These guys stole a ton of booze from wait wait, their, wait from their wait, employers. Wait, wait, where where we have where's this happening? Yeah, set the scene, Greg. Tell me what's. Th- tell me where we are. So this this is happening in Frankfort, Kentucky, which uh, I believe is is that the capital of Kentucky? It Frankfort? is. I should. It is. is. I should. It is Frankfort, Kentucky, and and it the primary epicenter of this fraud was a place called the Buffalo Trace Distillery. Mm. However, there's also a Wild Turkey Distillery in the same city and there was some booze that was also stolen from the Wild Turkey Distillery. Uh, as well. And what happened? uh, So, so the, the scope of this embezzlement of booze, they started stealing the booze in 2008 and they got busted in April of 2015. That's when Toby Kurtzinger was, was arrested Hmm. was April of 2015. So they had a good run. Good run. They they did have a good run, and uh, and we were talking about this. It's funny to try to uh, as, as the media tried to quantify how much booze was stolen, like the dollar value of the booze that was stolen, because a lot of the stories say it's like uh, like a lot of them say over a hundred thousand dollars worth of of bourbon was stolen, and then some say it was two hundred thousand dollars of bourbon, and then others say it was well over a million dollars worth of bourbon, and you. The, the people you looked at, how much did they say? Yeah. Was so the dollar value of the bourbon? That a, was journalist,
1: a journalist who covered this story story um, for the State Journal, I believe, which is like the Frankfurt paper. He had a blog called On the Bourbon Trails. His name is Brad Bowman. Did I say his name? I didn't say his name. Nice. Brad Bowman. And on his no, website, and he covered this story the whole time it was going on, he, his blog said uh, it was in excess of a million bucks. The value of the yeah. booze.
0: So in Frankfurt, Kentucky, this Toby Kurtzinger fella, he started working for the Buffalo Trace Distillery in 1988. And he tells the story about, I think it was on the his first day on the job, his first shift, that at the end of the shift, some co-workers, some of his brand new co-workers that he just met that day ushered him into a back room of the distillery and everybody was dipping plastic cups into basically a barrel of, of white dog whiskey and and they were passing it around. And and it was almost like this, this is what Toby Kurtzinger says is that A, it established that it was part of the culture to help yourself to the booze. But B, it seemed as though he felt like he the, the other employees were testing him to try to sniff out if he was a narc or not. Because it's like, and almost like if you if on your first day, you steal some booze with all the other guys, you can't narc them out because you'd have to narc yourself out because you also stole the booze. So from day 1 it was pretty clear that the Buffalo Trace distillery w- was pretty fast and loose with their inventory control. Agreed? Agreed. He, he establishes himself at
1: the distillery for many many years with no with no untoward behavior whatsoever. But then
0: uh, not ne- oh. not necessarily oh, because okay. again in in Kurt Singer's own account it, it was it, it's similar to to what you said about when you worked at the beer place okay. that that a lot of times people at the company could just take some beer home and it was similar at <clears throat> at the buffalo trace distillery where people would take a bottle here and a bottle there didn't seem like it was a company policy where once a quarter you you got a You know, a 750 milliliter bottle of hooch. Right. But it was just like every now and then you just wanted one and you pocketed one and you walked away with it. So, yeah, it seemed as though he would take some from time to time throughout his career. But here's when things started to get real was in 2003, Toby Kurtzinger was assigned to a warehouse uh, and it was the specific warehouse where they were storing the reject whiskey. So, uh, for whatever reason, it didn't pass quality control, and they have this flunky whiskey warehouse. And when Kurt Singer was assigned there, he he just kind of joked around with his boss. He was he was like he was like, oh, all this whiskey is reject whiskey, and the boss was like, yeah, it's just we're just got to get rid of it. And Kurtzinger was like, well, uh, you know. Uh, I, if I, I could pay you a little bit to just take it off your hands so it's not your problem anymore if you could get me past security. And they were like, ha, 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 ha And then the boss totally did it <laughs> and, and let, him, let him just take the stuff. Which, again, if you're talking about the criminal mind, that's, I, I mean, think about how easy that would be to justify where you're going, this stuff was just going to go down a toilet anyways and not be sold right. because it's, it's shit whiskey, apparently, according to the risky connoisseurs of Buffalo Trace. So you're going, yeah, I, I, I greased a palm and I, and I was able to take some home, but it's no big deal because it's like dumpster diving for whiskey.
1: This episode of Oh My Fraud is sponsored by Zero. If you love listening to this podcast, you've learned that systems and processes could have prevented many of the frauds we've discussed. Having an accounting system like Xero can help a business create the processes it needs so that it can avoid becoming a future Oh My Fraud episode. Xero lets you set up multiple users, each with their own login and password, so you can accurately assign the proper access to each user. When it comes to accounts payable, Xero pushes all bills through a built-in approval process. Xero's expense management tools ensure that employees only get reimbursed for approved expenses. And because Xero connects directly to banks, you can reconcile and match transactions daily to ensure that any money coming and leaving the bank accounts is what you expected. To become a Zero partner and gain access to free tools, benefits and rewards for your practice, head over to omifraud.promo/0. That's omifraud.promo/zero.
0: So here's the next beat in this here's the next beat in the story. And this again, it comes straight from the mouth of Toby Kurtzinger is that uh, there was this one day he had a buddy, the buddy came over to Toby's house. Toby pulls out a bottle of a Pappy Van Winkle, and his buddy's like, Oh my gosh, you got Pappy Van Winkle, that's crazy. Uh, I've got some friends who totally want to buy some Pappy Van Winkle. And so Toby was like, Oh, that's crazy. I just happen again, it's like, huh, well, let me look at my cupboard. Oh, this is weird. I just happen to have a couple of Pappy Van Winkle bottles right here. Weird. How did those get there? Well, hey, if you want to take these, you can just take them. No big deal, buddy. So the guy took the two bottles of Pappy Van Winkle, and the next day, the very next day, this same guy came back to Toby's house and dropped down a wad of cash on the counter, More, more money than Toby makes in a month. The guy hands him for two bottles of Pappy Van Winkle, and his buddy said, hey, if you got any – whatever that you can get your hands on, I can get it sold just like these two bottles that you sold, that you gave me the other day. And then dollar signs in his eyeballs, he's like, this is what I do now <laughs> is this kind right. of th- – this thing to the extent that I can. Right. And that's when they start the clock on the fraud was in 2008 because then he did start doing that. He'd get bottles. He'd give them this buddy. The buddy'd sell them, The buddy would give him a cut, and they're good, which, again, you've got to think that wad of cash that was more than a month's uh, salary for Toby, the buddy probably took at least that much for himself as well, which makes sense if bottles of Pappy are selling for thousands of dollars. Right. And interesting fact, Toby was only making $15 or $16 an hour At Buffalo Trace Distillery. So it doesn't take, you know, you can you can start doing the math in terms of what a month's salary is for Toby Kurtzinger and how a couple bottles would actually pay for a month's worth of his wages. If I may stop you for a second. Please.
1: I seem to recall that there was some talk of softball in this story. Did you mention that?
0: There is, and let's get to let, let me let me tell you one more little thing about how a way that Toby would would get bottles out of the distillery and home. They would have a taster like like a taster bottles where uh, I think it was partly like we were saying for quality control. I think it was partly for like a, a distillery tours. People mm-hmm. come through, you get to taste some bottles of of the pappy, and and again goes to the fast and loose inventory control of the distillery. So they'd have a dude, he'd be manning this table for tastings for whomever the tastings was set up for. And the factory would be like, yeah, let's put out, I don't know, 20 bottles. Uh, that, that's our allocation for the tasting table for today. So the dude have 20 bottles. And really, the factory already wrote all 20 of those bottles off, regardless of how many people came and tasted them. So Toby would walk up to the guy who's man in the table and be like, Hey, you know that I, I know people would pay a thousand bucks per bottle for those bottles. How about you hook me up with one? Nobody's going to know it's gone and I'll cut you in a little bit. And so the guy was like, the, well, and even again, in Toby's own words, he said the guy running, the, he he knew that the guy running the tasting table was strapped for cash. And so that guy had some pressure on him to do it. So he handed over a couple bottles of booze to Toby and Toby, like I said, gave him a cut of that stuff and made everybody happy. And 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 really, from their perspective, again, they rationalize it because the distillery had already written it off. The st- distillery, they didn't have to go get more bottles of booze for tasting. The tasting went on until the booze were gone. Right. So the distillery's no worse off than they would have been anyways, and they're just getting their beak wet a little bit. So, so it was it was crazy how all that happened. D- just little ways that he could he could pinch a bottle here and a bottle there and make a lot of side cash.
1: Yeah. I think if I remember right, they were also, they also, they also just took the display bottles. So stuff that, yeah. Was just, you know, in the, in the entryway or, you know, like you say, for people coming (laughs) in, people come in to do the tour. It's like, Hey, there's a case full of booze. And like, nobody's like, nobody's paying attention. Right. So it's like, well, that can be ours. Right. We can, we can,
0: Right, like like you're saying in the entryway, it's like, well, there's a there's a a, a fake uh, tree in a pot, and over there for decoration, yeah. and over there there's several bottles of our product just for decoration. <laughs> if we took a couple of those decorative bottles that are full of actual product that we can sell for thousands of dollars, we could sell them for thousands of dollars. So yoink, 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 those are gone, and they they didn't take all of them, right? Because pigs get fat and hogs get slaughtered, so they left enough. <laughs> But they took some, and they again got their beak wet again right. that way. So, um, but yes, back to your point, softball. Oh, so softball <laughs> was involved in this game. And fun fact, softball—the sport most closely associated with fraud—softball was involved right. because Toby. Well, actually, again, in the account that I was that, that I that I was digging deep into, Toby was involved in the softball team and then he had to back away from it because he got married he had a family and his wife was like hey you're married now you can't spend all this time playing softball with your knucklehead friends so he felt like he had to choose between softball and his family and he chose his family because clearly he's a upstanding family man but then how much softball once softball started he playing? figuring out how like he was playing. I think it was tons of. I think that was his life. Like if your wife, outside, not not his life outside of work, but if your wife, if, oh, if right, your wife right.
1: comes to you and says, "It's
0: softball or your family."
1: Like, how many nights a week mm-hmm. are
0: you playing softball? Right. And I've played some softball, and for me, that would not be a hard yeah. decision.
1: Not. I mean. Uh, I haven't played softball in years, but if I was, it wouldn't be hard for me to not play. Right. Yeah. I don't mean to belittle him or his friends or anything like that, but like, yeah, you I did. Yeah, you did. What I am having a hard time understanding is he must have been playing so much softball and spending so much time doing softball related things that his wife gave him
0: an ultimatum. Yeah softball softball was his life so him and his buddy dusty adkins they were like the guys for the softball league i don't even I, I it was hard to tell maybe sometimes they were on the same team but it sounded like a lot of times they would actually be on opposing teams but they were best friends it was friendly competition and these guys were like the best softball guys which is part of why toby's identity in large part wrapped around the softball thing but then since he was the best he wanted to get even better and so it that's where the steroids comes into the story where he would start actually doping up on steroids Naturally. he says right right because when you think of company softball you think needle in the butt <laughs> with steroids yep obviously And here's the other thing. He had a cop on his team named Mike Wells. And Mike Wells, the cop, was also using steroids. And interesting fact steroids are actually, you know, not, not, don't, it's not a generalization where like all cops use steroids, but there is a large percentage of the police force that uses steroids and does it and justifies their illegal use of steroids because they're like, I'm going up against bad guys. I need to have an edge, so give me some steroids. So uh, so apparently, uh, Toby was the supplier of the steroids for his close friends and his softball buddies, including a cop named Mike Wells. Another person that was a was a softball associate was a dude named so- Sean Searcy, And Sean Searcy did not work at the Buffalo Trace Distillery. This guy worked at the Wild Turkey Distillery and he drove truck for the Wild Turkey Distillery, which comes into play a little bit later in the story. But those guys, those were the, and yeah, and there there was another guy named Ronnie Lee who was also indicted with this whole thing. So So, what I think um, you're getting
1: at here is we have kind of a vast conspiracy of softball guys in this bourbon racket is that what you're trying to say
0: yeah yes and it's crazy too because because what they uh, gosh and i and i wish that i had i had written this down because i i did maybe i'll remember the the charge that they maybe you'll remember the. do you remember the charge that they brought up against toby it was something like it was an organized crime type charge which meant that Anyone who was involved, like if it's an organized crime charge, everybody in the group would be charged with all the crimes that were perpetrated by anyone in the group. Yeah. So if you had one guy who murdered somebody, everybody's on the hook for murder. If you got one guy who stole something, everybody's on the line for stealing that thing. Do you do you remember that part of I it? I do. And I can't, it was I can't a, remember the as actual. A, as name I recall, of it. one of the law enforcement
1: officers on the on the documentary was saying that it was a Kentucky law and it was something, Yeah, it was something, it wasn't conspiracy, but in, in engaging in organized criminal activity or something like that, or that sounds right. Yeah. That sounds right. right. And, yeah, that sounds really right. Like when they would Let's be, go with that yeah, <laughs> close enough. Uh, but like when they were questioning the guys, they were explaining it to them. It's like, yeah, this is what this guy did. The kingpin you're involved. So you get charged with the same thing. And the guys, they, they like, Flipped in a second, right? Because it was like right. they were looking at, right? Yeah, they were yeah. looking at long sentences. Thank you to Books Time for sponsoring this episode. Finding top quality talent is hard. Managing bookkeepers takes time and energy. Let Books Time do that hard work for you. With Books Time, you get a dedicated team of experienced, tech savvy, and responsive bookkeepers. The size of your team will scale to meet your needs, even if your needs change. You'll never again have to worry about recruiting, training, or managing bookkeepers again. Bookstime is extremely picky about who they hire, carefully evaluating bookkeepers to ensure they are knowledgeable, accurate, detail-oriented, and reliable. Bookstime rejects about 99% of candidates. You get to work with the top 1%. Contact Bookstime for a free, no-obligation consultation. They'll answer all your questions and work with you to determine whether your firm is a good fit for their white label partner program. To learn more, visit bookstime.com slash accountants. That's B-O-O-K-S-T-I-M-E.com slash accountants. Grow your profits and shrink your workload with Bookstime.
0: Exactly. Are we skipping ahead too much? So, okay, so just no, not to no, not at all. This because I think if we are jumping around it's because this case is like a clusterfuck <laughs> of idiots who who just wound up because that's the weird thing like they were it was organized criminal activity they were so unorganized it was ridiculous so one last little thing before we start getting into the the crime syndicate of knuckleheads <laughs> toby kurtzinger also somehow was involved with with poker nights, like backroom poker nights in the bustling metropolis of Frankfurt, Connecticut, and people who Kentucky, went to these poker Greg.
1: nights, Kentucky, were rich they v- don't make bourbon. In.
0: What did I you say, said
1: Connecticut? They don't make bourbon in Connecticut. Oh my gosh, my brain is like mush. And if so, you call, and if you for, call Kentucky a state, I'm going to call you out on that too.
0: Is Kentucky not a the state? A fucking commonwealth. Back to the story. Oh. Oh, okay. Well, okay. So uh, Toby, sorry. Was I had sorry, sorry. with all. <laughs> I want to make sure we were clear. Commonwealth. It's <laughs> it's Commonwealth. Right. It's a Commonwealth. Right. So so there was really so at these poker games there was some rich and elite people from the state of Kentucky who would come to these poker nights. Commonwealth. And like we're talking senators. I don't know if it's state senators or U.S. senators, but there was like senators who'd be at these. So there's there's like connected people who are at these poker nights, and poker and booze go very well together. Toby, like I said, somehow he wasn't necessarily the upper echelon of Frankfurt, Connecticut, but he got in, invited to these poker nights, and uh, one of the rich guys at the poker night said uh, that whatever Toby could get him in terms of bottles and booze, he would buy it from him, and in one instance. He paid Toby four thousand dollars for three bottles of Pappy Van Winkle, and like we said, don't know exactly what how you know maybe those were thirteen years. Who knows what they are? But regardless, if Toby's getting them for zero dollars, selling three of them for four thousand dollars is a huge markup for him. It's an infinity percent markup from zero percent to from zero dollars to four thousand dollars. So, Toby has all these people who are saying I'll buy whatever you can get your hands on and Toby is getting what he can get his hands on and he's getting rid of it and he's making some money but he's also getting well known among his softball buddies and his work buddies as a guy who can fence stolen booze And so so there's this one night he's got a work buddy named Ray Osborne, who apparently had a cocaine problem and also stole 20 cases of different kinds of high end booze from the Buffalo Trace distillery. And Toby's like, Ray, how did you get all this booze? And Ray's like, I don't know, man. I just got it. And it's here in the back of this truck. Can you sell it for me? And Toby's like. I guess so and he, but but Toby in his account he's like but don't you ever do this don't ever again. do that again you dumb <laughs> shit right and so but but he's like but yeah put it in my put it in my garage and so uh some of it was uh it, it was it was all the different kinds of booze that they that they Made at the Buffalo Trace Distillery, which not only included Pappy Van Winkle, it was also some Eagle, uh, what was Eagle it? Rare, Eagle Rare, Eagle Select, Eagle Rare, ten, Eagle Year. Rare, Eagle Rare, ten. There it is, yeah. and, and some and Blantons. I think a lot of those cases were there were some Blantons, regular, yeah, Blantons. That was some other one. Yeah. So he had a veritable potpourri of Buffalo Trace booze in his garage, and he says he made two phone calls and poof. All of the booze was converted into cash for him, and he doesn't even say how much he passed on to Ray Osborne, probably just enough for a good eight ball. (laughs) And I say that as though I know what an eight ball is. Um, The other thing that's interesting, going back to the, the softball guys, we talked about Sean Searcy. He's the guy who drove truck for the Wild Turkey distillery. But again, he knows that Toby can sell some shit. So he started bringing Toby some bare full barrels mm. of booze, not, not bottles, barrels of booze. Each barrel was worth around $1,200, which also that seems low to me. Cause did you, did you find values for full barrels of whiskey in your research? I did not. Cause I w- because three thousand dollars is also kicking around in my head for a barrel of bourbon, and that sounds well—that's what they were better s- than twelve hundred dollars. That's what they were
1: selling it for.
0: But here's, regardless of how much these barrels of whiskey were worth, here's how Sean uh, stole the barrels of whiskey, is like I said, he drove truck for Wild Turkey and he would would be transferring barrels between two different Wild Turkey locations. And on his way from one of the locations to another location, he'd stop at his father-in-law's farm and he'd roll barrels down a ladder into his father-in-law's barn, so they have like this. Uh, what what are those things called? The R- Rube Goldberg machine of whiskey barrels that go down you know, like a like a redneck Rube Goldberg machine. <laughs> you drop the barrel in, and it rolls down, carefully placing it into his father-in-law's barn, and then he quickly zooms off to his other uh, to the other location, and and like literally, you hear about stolen goods people saying this fell off the truck yeah. like that's almost exactly yeah. what was happening with these barrels they literally game. fell off a truck so i mean he pushed him but after into they got a, pushed, into they a redneck Root goldberg uh, machine <laughs> exactly and here's another fun fact at one point he, he i guess i wouldn't know how much snow kentucky gets but i guess it gets some snow and so at one point sean searcy Calls the county to complain that this very this rural back road that led to his father-in-law's barn wasn't plowed. And that didn't crack the case, but it was one of those things where in hindsight, like people were putting pieces together to go, no, we should have figured it out here because this rural road is nowhere near the route between these two wild turkey. Uh, location. So if he's complaining that he can't get his truck down this road, he shouldn't have his truck on that road, anyways, because that doesn't make any sense. So again, it was a syndicate of redneck knuckleheads <laughs> who were just stealing stuff and fine and, and giving it to Toby because Toby could get rid of it. Here's another Wait, funny thing. I Toby would just remind ne- you though. Oh, yes. I would just
1: remind you though, please, that this this ragtag group of Bourbon heisters uh-huh. knuckleheads they may be but they did pull this off for 8 years yes 8 years 7 years they did 7 years they did 7 years and they if you count it from
0: 08 to 2015 just giving credit where credit is due good point but but it's almost like stupid people just stumbling their way into the biggest bourbon heist in history <laughs> that's that's seriously what it feels like to me is they were like, oh, I mean, like the guy, the guy with the truck full of the things. Like, I don't even know how they got there. It's it's just so it's not organized crime, it's disorganized crime a hundred percent. Yeah, so so another thing that strangely worked in Toby's favor, although it a hundred percent shouldn't have, is that Toby never hid the fact that he worked for the Buffalo Trace Distillery, and that actually helped him move the booze because the people that were buying it were just like oh he must get an employee discount cool so he he can get his hands on the stuff that we can't get our hands on and he can get it cheaper than we Mm -hmm. can so cool that's how this all must work so so again he should have been caught because somebody should have said hey there's this buffalo trace guy selling buffalo trace stuff on the side what the hell's up with this but instead they're like oh yeah it seems that make that makes sense. It's it's all it's all on the up yeah. and up. No problem. Let's buy it. So, so just just so weird. So
1: maybe I'm jumping ahead of it a bit, but how does this all come crumbling
0: down? I we're we're absolutely okay. ready to get to get into that. Um also, just full disclosure, I have been take drinking some bourbon myself tonight. Oh. So hopefully this story gets even funner as as it goes along. But I also might end up calling Kentucky, Connecticut. So there's... there's or that, a state. There's the unintended consequences of that. Or a state. Yeah, because it is. Now, in October 2013, here's where everything starts to crumble down. October 2013, the Buffalo Trace Distillery finds that 200 bottles of Pappy Van Winkle, poof, they're missing out of their inventory. So I guess... Once in seven years, they do an inventory count at the Buffalo Trace distilleries. And the sheriff, they have this problem between the sheriff and the cops because the cops are taking steroids and they kind of want to protect Toby who's going on. Then they got the sheriff who's trying to get reelected. who's like, we got to figure out who stole these 200 bottles of Pappy Van Winkle from the Buffalo Trace distillery. So the sheriff puts out a a $10,000 reward for information leading to the arrest and conviction of the Pappy Van Winkle burglar, and because of the the reward, they were just getting inundated with tips. But all of them were just fruitless. Just people going, "Yeah, I think I saw Buddy with a barrel in the back of his truck," and then they couldn't find the guy, or they it, it, it everything just fizzled out. Nothing was good. But then things really started to unravel for Toby in March of 2015 when the county sheriff received an anonymous tip and they said, hey, there's bottles, uh, sorry, there's barrels of whiskey at toby kurtzinger's house here's the address go check it out he stole the booze so the sheriff's department sends out their people they snoop around they see the five barrel they they think they see the five barrels under like a tarp back behind his garage they get a they get a search warrant they get to go on the property they find the barrels they go into the house and what's crazy is in the house they are unpacking everything and they find this the illegal steroids as well and apparently they find Like, shit tons of guns in this house, too. But it's lots and lots and lots lots of guns. But uh, there was never any charges for the guns. So the guns were legally obtained, but they added to the fire of the story because, you know, booze, steroids, and guns is a great story, even if it's Kentucky and the arsenal of dozens of guns was all on the up and up. So he never, there was never any legal problems with the guns, but obviously there was legal problems with the steroids, legal problems with stolen booze. It certainly looks, um, it certainly looks. And bad. It, yeah, yeah. It certainly it, looks. Y- yeah, bad. the guns don't help the visual. No.
1: Right. No, you got some, you exactly. Got, you got some steroids. So you're assuming some aggro. You got some booze. So yeah. you're, you're thinking, huh, maybe stolen booze, you know, dealing uh, in stolen goods, a little aggro with the steroids. There's some firearms around. Things could, hey, things could get messy quite, right. quite quickly. Sh-
0: yeah, shit could get <laughs> ugly. Yeah, that's it. At least has to be disconcerting for members of the 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 police to find just a, a huge stockpile of firearms with anybody that they're investigating. So, but, but uh, again, it, there's a thing and we we were kind of getting into this with just sort of the, the, Hey, everybody who works at a distillery just kind of happens to have booze from their distillery that they work at. And along with that, there's, there's very much a, not a snitches get stitches idea, but just like good people don't rat on their friends. Mm. That's very much the, the culture of this place. So nobody, nobody was narking them out toby was well actually i guess he started what singing like a canary is that what they used to that's say about people yeah i think i think that's an expression in the english language uh and then his wife comes out and she's like hey shut the <laughs> fuck up till we get an attorney you dumbass!" <laughs> and so he was like oh oh yeah you're you're right i quit softball for you <laughs> now i'll shut up for you honey and so he did and apparently he didn't say enough to, to to actually confess to what was going on, but then they got a warrant to be able to obtain his phone records and his particularly his text messages. And his text messages were they he was a hundred percent guilty of stealing booze and selling steroids based on his his uh, text messages. Yeah. So that's that's how everything fell the, apart. The the text messages if
1: if you know you watch the documentary that was really like you know in 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 these kind of like conspiracies there's always the search for the smoking gun you know the metaphorical right smoking gun and like there were so many smoking guns in these text messages like they just couldn't they i mean pick <laughs> yeah pick your smoking gun like it was yeah. just it, uh yeah like
0: you said uh disorganized crime disorganized
1: severely severely yeah.
0: disorganized crime severely severely uh, so that's when that's when everything fell fell to pieces for Toby Kurtzinger. Uh, he pled guilty to theft charges in 2017. He was sentenced to 15 years in jail, but he only served 30 days of those 15 years because he was a first-time non-violent offender, and he was. But the crazy thing was, so again, they they find these text messages. There's this whole cadre of steroid freak softball player friends who all get pulled in for questioning everybody. It wasn't, it wasn't clear exactly why or how this happened, but Toby was seen as the ringleader. So he was the guy who took the fall for everybody. So they Mm. were, they brought in these people. They gave them immunity. If they'd help him, if they would help the case against Toby, because they needed They needed somebody to present to the community to say, hey, look, we got the bad guy. So they all narked on Toby. Toby took the fall for him, and he was the only one out of uh, the group of nine or ten people that got hauled in. He was the only one to serve any time at all for the crimes. So 30 days in jail, he was out. He obviously does not work at Buffalo Trace (laughs) Distillery anymore. Now he paints houses for a living. But Caleb, yes, there is a weird epilogue to the story. There because is. Because everything started falling apart because of these 200 bottles of Pappy Van Winkle that were stolen, that were found missing from the distillery in 2013. And Toby to this day says, "Yeah, I stole some shit, but I did not steal those 200 bottles of Pappy Van Winkle." And he still tells that story today. And then looking through the records of the, the conversations that the police had with all these different people, not just in the group that was associated with Toby, but also the interviews they had with all the people who worked at, like a hundred people that worked at Buffalo Trace Distillery, they came across this guy named Greg Anglin, who they said, hey, we you've got immunity if you help us bust Toby, I guess. And Greg was like, "Yeah." They were like, "Did you ever steal anything?" And he's like, "Yeah, you know, I stole a case." And they're like, "Was it so? It's just one case. You gotta, you gotta tell us because if you if you lie to us now, you're none of this immunity stuff's gonna work." And he's like, "Okay, it was two cases." And they go, "You sure, just two? And all of a sudden, it got from one case to seventeen <laughs> cases of Pappy Van Winkle that this Greg Anglin guy stole. So all of this pressure's on finding this Pappy Van Winkle thief and. Toby Kurtzinger is a thief, but it but it looks like from all the all the evidence that's out there now that all the dust is settled, that Toby didn't steal the 200 bottles of Pappy Van Winkle. It was this Greg Anglin guy and the police let him get away scot-free because they're like, hey, we'll just uh, make all your sins disappear if you snitch on Toby. And he was like, "Cool, I'll do it." I stole two hundred bottles of Pappy Van Winkle. Burn. Looks like you're the sucker now. And he walks out whistling and skipping and clicking his heels out of the out of the detective's office. So that's that's the very interesting epilogue. And and, and I guess you know, Caleb. Sometimes we talk about justice being served. And I mean, what do you think? Was it served with Toby? Was it served with his friends? You know,
1: I have a hard time with this one because it's one of those things where, you know, people get in over their heads. Toby's account of this is, you know, a lot of what we're drawing on here. And like, you listen to him talk and he's just like, look, when I didn't have softball, I was like, he was, he was lost. Like he needed something to fill that thing that gave him confidence, that made him feel good about himself, the self-esteem, right? And so when he could help people out whether it's fucking pricey booze or steroids I mean he was able to make those connections for and in his own words he talks about it he he says it's like that made me feel good that, it gave me that little bit of that ga- gave him that dopamine hit that he needed to f- get the self esteem to have the confidence to do the stuff and so i i think anyone anyone can relate to that kind of human need right but what i think is incredibly misguided is to think that taking stuff illegally from your employer and giving it to someone else and getting a huge markup getting getting like getting thousands of dollars for something that retails you know getting thousands of dollars for se- selling something that retails for a couple hundred and it doesn't cost you anything like to, to kind of rationalize it in your brain. Like that is incredibly misguided. Okay. And like he, he, yeah. he, Abs- you, oh, and absolutely. he ropes all his buddies in and like, and just like, look, th- that's not an accident. He didn't like, they didn't just like, we half joking about it. And then they fall ass backwards into a conspiracy. No, like the, there were, there's deliberate <laughs> right. behavior here. Right. And so, yeah. yeah. So, so like in terms of that, like, He definitely made some pretty bad choices, but I understand like the desires he had to like, again, self-esteem, right? In terms of like the justice, I don't know, like 15 years, like he was sentenced to 15 years. I mean, you know me, I'm kind of the, I'm kind of the, I don't know, bleeding heart or whatever. That seems pretty (laughs) steep. Yeah. That seems steep for, you know, for all intents and purposes, like nonviolent crime, right? And he was, he, he did qualify what they call in Kentucky. They, they talked about it. They call it a shock. Uh, He was a shock offender
0: and that's why he was released after 30 days. And do you remember what that term, I I remember looking at that and isn't it that like, because you're a first time nonviolent offender and you're like, Hey, Hey bitch, you're going to jail for 15 years. That shocks them into changing their, it scares them straight. Essentially. Yeah. And then they're like, ah, so you're good after a month. Don't worry yeah. about it, but don't you do it yeah, again. So,
1: I mean, there may be some question, there may be some debate about whether 30 days is really justice given the value of the merchandise. But, but I think there's something about, there is something about kind of this, this shock uh, offender system that seems to be, at least people who I I don't know the history of it or anything, but it seems to be in the right place, but I hope at least, and again, don't know, don't know much about it, but as long as, as it's applied consistently, like usually when these things happen, they're not applied consistently. And so that's what I would worry about. But in any case, like his, his kids are in that documentary and they're, they're devastated through all this. And his wife is devastated. And like, like dude knucklehead or not, like dude went through a lot. And so in this case, yeah. and, and basically I had to start completely over. So is justice served? I don't know. I think about all that and I look at, you know, I look at, you know, the stories and the documentary and everything. And I think, yeah, dude hasn't had it easy. So yeah, I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm, I guess yeah. if I need to be satisfied, I don't know if satisfied is the right word, but I guess I'm satisfied.
0: <laughs> Greg, what do you think? Am I, okay. am I way off? My, my two cents. Yeah. No, 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 no. <clears throat> we're right on the same line. I also feel like Toby justice was served for Toby. I'm cool. He got sentenced to 15 and, and, and the fact that he only served 30 days, not because of a technicality, not because his attorneys right. were, you know, were super, it, but they were like, no, he, this is his first time. And he's not violent. He can be back out in society. And, and, and you we're know, pretty confident we're, he's we're never going to do anything so stupid ever again yeah so so i think so i feel okay with what happened to toby where i don't feel justice is served is like i said they they needed somebody so bad for the newspapers to say we got him that they let so many people go scot-free that's what i think is not justice what's interesting about this is
1: you know law enforcement they have these kind of like you know they have these tricks up their sleeves they have these methods in terms of like getting people to cooperate with them and they dangle things like immunity yeah. and that's what they did to all these guys and say well we'll give you immunity uh if you just tell us everything you know and really i if i if i'm maybe i'm mistaken but sheriffs and police officers they don't get to decide who gets prosecuted for crimes prosecutors Decide mm. who gets prosecuted for crimes. Right. And I mean, they have to work together. Yeah. Right? They work together on those things about it's like, well, this person did this thing. It's like, what are you going to do? Whatever. And they might make, I suppose law enforcement makes recommendations to the prosecutors. It would be interesting. Greg kite. If we got a prosecutor on here to talk about this stuff. But my point is, I would love that. Yeah, but my point is, is you're right to give all these people com- immunity, including someone who probably made off with, you know, hundred A couple hundred bottles of Pappy Van Winkle, which is probably worth what a hundred grand or whatever we were speculating about. Right. There is yeah. there is something kind of that is very unsatisfying. Where there's plenty of there's plenty of wrongdoing to go around here, and they pin it all on one guy. I I am sympathetic to your argument. I'm sympathetic to your position that like yeah, <laughs> there's some people here that maybe had something coming and it never came.
0: Yeah, right on. Well, it's good that you and I can get to agreement on that. And who knew? Who knew? So, Caleb, one thing I want to get into is this. We talked about this already. Toby Kurtzinger, he's convinced that he's just like everybody else. And and he says this at one point in that documentary. He says, if you if anybody was presented with the opportunity to steal one bottle of whiskey that you could sell for the equivalent of two weeks worth of work. And you knew there would be absolutely no con. You know, you would, you were hundred percent certain you wouldn't get caught. You, you would absolutely do it. That's, that's what he presented to the, He was like, right. You guys would do that. If you could steal something and not get caught and make tons of money, you, you shut up. You holier than thou asshole. You'd absolutely steal the booze too. Don't be such a prick that's what he but but that's that's the question would mm. you do you think you would do that Caleb if you were if there was an opportunity to 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 do something like that would you or or, or, or maybe even more broadly do you think everybody would do what Toby Kurtzinger did
1: I think lots of people would okay I'll start there I think lots of people would okay I don't think everyone would I think it all comes down to context. So if a person is living in Frankfurt, Kentucky, and they're making 15 or $16 an hour, and they just, they, they can't do the thing they love anymore, which is softball, you know, maybe taking some booze and selling it for thousands of dollars, maybe that's a real easy decision. But in terms of just like, just plopping somebody down in a situation, it's like, Oh, there's booze that you can take and you can sell it for thousands of dollars. Like, there's plenty of people out there that'll be like, no, that's stealing. That is wrong. I'm not going to do that. Right. So, I, so what he says is it, it, it it's a pretty just raw generalization about human behavior. And it's, I don't agree with it. But, I, Greg, I'd, I'd be, I'd love to hear what you think. Is it, is where, where do you fall on that?
0: So here it's a, it's a whole journey for me when he says that initially my response is no, hell no, not, I wouldn't do it. And most, most everybody wouldn't do it. You did it. Stop trying to deflect your behavior and say, and, and justify your shitty life choices by saying, everybody do the exact same thing I did. If they were in the same circumstances, that's my initial response. But then Caleb I think back to stuff that you and I know from the ethics uh, trainings that we've done mm. where a you your behavior is influenced so strongly by the culture and by the other people that you are associated with in that like whatever ad hoc social uh, group, is around for that activity, which for him was the other people, not just at his distillery, but at other distilleries. So you've got this this seriously like a culture where taking stuff isn't really that bad, and probably you could find somebody who, I bet you Toby could probably find somebody who stole more booze than he stole. So you've got that context, and then you also have the context – this is this is something we talk about a lot, the ego depletion side yep. of it, where if you've got this wide-open door to steal stuff with no consequences – And you walk by that door. And door is
1: open to – You walk by that door every single day. For decades. For
0: decades, yeah. Then uh, eventually you're going to be like, yeah, I think I need <laughs> to steal that. Eventually your yeah. self-control is going to be eroded yeah. to where – and and those two factors combined, then I start going. Actually, he he might be right that m- actually most people who are in that culture who have the opportunity for that long probably are going to take some. But poop, again, I think then like and I,
1: maybe I don't mean to parse words here, but he said everybody, and you're saying most people, and I agree with you. I would I went so far to say I think a lot of people would do what he did. I don't know, like, I can't speak for myself. I can't speak for you. I can't, like, I can only speak for myself. I think a lot of people would do what he did, but I disagree pretty strongly with the assertion that everyone would do, like, everyone would do the same thing he did. That is just not only is it like a, like, a fucking impossibility, it just, there are, there are, there are (laughs) fucking, (laughs) there are militantly ethical people out there. (laughs) That just say stealing yeah, is no, absolutely. stealing is wrong. Period. End of story. Yeah, there's lots of people out there like that. Yeah, and so it it, it just it's it's just wrong to say that everyone would do this thing, even if. Right. They're making $15 an hour, working in a distillery, and the mo- the thing that they love more than their wife and family, softball has been recently taken away from them.
0: <laughs> they will still not steal. They won't steal. Yeah. Right. See, and here's the thing. So me personally, I think he's right. I think I would have stolen booze, but then a couple of years later would have been horribly guilty and I would have somehow like made my own and bottled it and put it back in stock, <laughs> Reim- just reimbursed to, to make the a distillery with a personal check. <laughs> Right, exactly. (laughs) Okay, next question. This question takes us to a weird place. Great. Now I'm excited. Been waiting for this. Well, yeah, I think it does. What do you do if you work at a company where misappropriation is part of the culture? Because we we have been trained to some degree or another. And I know that the AICPA has specific rules in terms of what, almost like a decision tree on what to do if there's unethical behavior at your job Mm. and you're supposed to go to your direct supervisor. And if they can't help you go to the board of directors, and if they can't help you go to the audit committee, and if they can't help you go to the police and if they can't help you, you quit the job. But what do you do if you're at a company where where just, nobody's going to, not just in a company, but even in, an, I guess, in an industry. Maybe that's a better way of saying it. You work in an industry where misappropriation is part of the culture. Because if you are a distillery worker and that's your expertise and you quit from this distillery and you go work to the other distillery, but you know that the culture's the same there, what what do you do? What's, what's your choice? Or did I already answer my own I mean, question? I think you answered your own question, but I guess, look, if somebody throws a ball,
1: you don't have to catch it right right so look if you know he tells that story about like his first day on the job it's quitting time they they go around and everybody has you know a sip of whiskey as a group of people like that's one thing that's like a communal it that feels like a communal thing that no one like you know from the owner to the supervisor to whoever on down be like oh this is just these are working people having a drink they work at a great place So happen the product is high quality booze and they're having a drink together and that's okay by us. It's a very different thing where there's bottles on the line and you just yank one out and you walk out the door. Like I just, you know, those two things are very different. So I think again, people who are confident in kind of the morality of what they see to be right and wrong, they can make those distinctions. And yes, there's nuance there, but If you, if you're in that part of a culture, yeah, it probably does feel like it's like, well, everybody's doing it. Why shouldn't I, I mean, you know, it's just one of those things where, yeah, maybe you do find a different place to work. And maybe, and maybe if the other, if maybe the distillery down the road, if they've got the same culture, then you've really got to re-examine what kind of company you want to work for altogether.
0: Greg. Yeah. What about you? I see. That's the thing. I do know absolutely. You need to uh, quit your job, and you need to find a new industry to work yeah. in. As a matter of fact, you should go back to school, and you should get an accounting degree and get your CPA license and become an accountant. Because and then maybe you could uh, go back we, to that distillery
1: and fucking put in some in, in
0: inventory internal <laughs> and controls. And, maybe and, I don't know and audit them. Yeah, yeah I don't know. exactly, exactly. Well, and that's and that's the thing. So, I, so, so like legit. I think that is the right answer. If you are in a company. That, that has a, a culture of misappropriation of inventory and you're in an industry that that culture is widespread throughout the industry you need to leave that industry I think that's bottom that's hard that's hugely sacrifi- sacrificial to do that but I think that's the right answer and that's how you d- how you you create a story of yourself being an ethical person yep. by doing that by going hey here and, and then that uh, reinforces your own self, that's how you become a militantly ethical person. Is by you start, you make a huge sacrifice uh, on to to hold your core values of being a, an ethical person. I, I want to do just a quick like, I, I don't know if it, just a speed round of, of of insights that I had about this case. And would you please chime in when you have some thoughts that pertain to these? Is that does that work? Is that is that a good way to? To round out the podcast. That's a great way to round out the podcast. Awesome. So one thing that I felt, and this comes from the ethics training that you and I have done several times, Caleb, is that bad behavior in one area primes you for bad behavior in another area. Doing illegal steroids that's illegal, and that's gonna prime someone to make it more likely that they're gonna steal booze from their employers. So if you're doing if you're doing one thing that's illegal, it's not gonna help you in terms of being ethically pure in another area. As a matter of fact, research shows that it does the exact opposite, and you're much much more likely to do if you do one illegal thing. You're gonna do other illegal. All things right. And it's so if I understand, you down. The whole. So if
1: I understand you right, bolder shoulders and sweet pecs do not equal
0: not <laughs> stealing. Right. Right. Okay. Whew. In this particular yeah. story, I mean, if okay. you get them, if you get them on natural, then you're good. <laughs> okay. But great. if you get them through illegal steroids, it's not going to help. Yeah, you're not going to help you be an ethical person. Yeah,
1: you're probably going to so. steal uh, high end booze or uh, mousetraps or
0: whatever. Here's some other observations that I saw. Red flags. Red flags with Toby Kurtzinger specifically. These are red flags as outlined by the ACFE in their report to the nation. Interesting. Not really that much uh, red flags that were exhibited by Toby. The two that I found were the were the closest match for him was having a wheeler-dealer attitude because he, 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 he described himself as being the guy that you can go to to get you something if you need it. So he was kind of like, he, he was ready to make deals and figure out how to get stuff done. So I think that qualifies as a Wheeler dealer attitude and the other, and 13% of fraudsters exhibit that Wheeler dealer attitude. It's not the highest one, but it's, it's, it's about middle of the middle of the pack. And then also complaining about inadequate pay. He was saying, Hey, I was only making 15 to 16 bucks an hour. And this booze was worth tons more than that. Um, so I don't, I never really felt like he explicitly like complained about his pay, but he definitely used it as kind of a benchmark for what he was stealing. So that was kind of a maybe red flag and 8% of fraudsters exhibit the red flag of complaining about inadequate pay. Any, uh, commentary on either of those, Caleb? No, I mean,
1: I think it's pretty spot on. Like it's very insightful like that uh, you were you, you you read between the lines very well on the uh on the pay question yeah he he maybe wasn't explicitly complaining but it uh it was clear that like you say he was that was the measuring stick for in his mind
0: yeah, and it maybe goes back to what you said at the top of the podcast about pound of flesh kind of yeah. mentality, where it's like these guys are getting more than they're getting more than fifteen or sixteen bucks out of me. So, yep. but but again, he didn't he didn't explicitly connect those dots for us in the whole thing. One one of the other things that did kind of come up was living beyond your means. That's mm. the most common red flag behavior among perpetrators. And but but it never nothing really came up where he was living this ultra extravagant lifestyle. It was more like he got his kids really nice Christmas presents. That was that was the extravagance of his lifestyle. It wasn't that he you know bought a quarter horse empire that he bred <laughs> right and traveled around the country. Yeah. There was you know it was nothing nothing I mean I think you know it maybe at one point it was like he got a really nice pickup truck. But again it's sort of like that doesn't seem right. like over the top uh living beyond yeah the reach, and so. i mean
1: like that's the thing is again when you talk about has this guy has, has justice been served like for all i mean we have a very limited picture of this guy's life obviously but mm-hmm. dude seemed to love his kids he wanted to give his kids a good life and like yeah if he if he blew that extra money on giving them i mean he blew it on steroids and guns, obviously. But if he also, <laughs> <laughs> right, that's what
0: he did. It was the arsenal of fire. I mean, there was an that arsenal. It was his extravagant lifestyle. There was an arsenal. Yeah. That's
1: not cheap. That stuff's not cheap. That's, yeah. There was an arsenal. So let's not forget that. But if, if he was yeah, like blowing money on his kids, like, yeah, you know, I mean, he was, he was showing them love in the way he knew how. So yeah.
0: Yeah. Next thing, uh, just to go through the fraud triangle, um, the opportunity, so opportunity, rationalization, and pressure. Those are the three sides of the fraud triangle. So this is more just a recap. The opportunity was there because Buffalo trace had shitty physical controls over the inventory they may have been Buffalo old. Trace as they, had may, shitty. they may have been old as the, the, the distillery itself. Yes, exactly. And well, and that's actually something that did come up in some of my research was that, that, uh, that distilleries and, and, uh, whiskey making was just an ancient you know it's so so old school that that it's almost beneficial to the brand if you're like we're still making whiskey the same way that we did back in 1816 and that that whole idea of that's what a signal of quality is that it's hard to to say yeah that's for our production side but everything else we're going to bring into the 21st century if you're if you're um, it's hard it's hard to it wouldn't be a bad yeah, idea to get your back office in the twenty first century exactly. but that that goes to your point where the the physical controls over industry uh, over inventory probably weren't that different from when these distilleries first started, you know, uh, ostensibly over a hundred years ago. Mm-hmm. So yeah, you're right. And, and same can be said, shitty internal audit procedures, shitty inventory management, not just physical control, but just sheer management of industry. And then, like we've said over and over again, just a, a shitty culture where where people are almost expected to to help themselves from time to time. So that's the that was the opportunity side of the fraud triangle. That rationalization, we already said it, everybody's doing it, and everybody would do it if they were put in my, my situation. That That's pretty clear. The pressure... That was the thing, that was the missing part of the fraud triangle for me. I mean, we've said his pay wasn't great, but it but but we never really saw that like he was getting hunted down by loan sharks, so he had to pinch some bottles of booze to sell to get them off his back. We never we never saw a huge financial pressure on him other than just having more money is nicer than having less money. well and i guess the little bit you were saying where he found purpose in life by stealing <laughs> booze
1: yeah i mean i think that's probably
0: <laughs> what i
1: would point to is he felt he he needed a he he after you you know he had to quit playing softball i won't beat that drum again but it's uh-huh. been a lot of softball <laughs> <laughs> he needed something. Dude needed something. To fill the void. Dude needed something yeah. to fill so the that, goal, to fill the void. And so, like yeah. the pressure for him is yeah. just like again, self-esteem, confidence. Like yeah. feeling like that he 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 had something to look forward to, and that he and he was helping. Well, in his mind, he was helping people, but he was connecting people. He was the guy. He's like, I got a guy, and I was the guy. Like he said that several times. And so yeah I'm, yeah, I'm. I'm sure yeah. that was. Uh, it was. It was. Uh, that wasn't. E- that was the opposite of ego depletion. That was ego appreciation. Ego, yeah, ego boosting. Ego appreciation. Yeah. So yeah. I think to the to the I extent that I, the that pressure could exist. Again, we could get a psychologist on here to talk about this. That'd be interesting.
0: Yeah, which I I would love that. Well, here's here's the thing. I think you're on to brand new. You just discovered a brand new. Part of the pressure side of the the fraud triangle that's completely un, underappreciated, and that is existential ennui. Ooh. because if you if if you hundred percent are like going I don't know why I exist on Earth and then then that's a you got I mean that's a, that's a fundamental need of the human psyche. I'm writing this is down. to have a reason to to not put a bullet in the noggin and you go well I found it. Was that too dark? Did I go too dark on the front podcast? Not for podcast? me. Not for well, me. <laughs> nice. Not for me either. And if somebody lasted this long in the podcast, not for them either, because they're looking for something
1: existential ennui.
0: Write it down, everybody. Yeah. All right. There it is. Okay. So so yeah, that's a people. That, that's an underappreciated undervalued something that nobody talks about when it comes to pressure. Next thing I want to talk about is how it was detected. It was detected through a tip. It was funny that the sheriff's office, it was very clear that they actually knew the identity of the person who gave the tip, which I guess they'd have to, if they're given 10,000 bucks out, but they were a hundred percent not wanting to give that identity up, which makes sense. They, that that's how they should be. But there was sort of the subtext, and I don't know if you picked up on it, Caleb. That it was like it was somebody from the inner circle. Did you did you feel that too?
1: Yeah, I mean, I don't have a I don't have a hunch as to who it was, but it had to have been. It was his wife. It was his wife. No, 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 no. Come on, come on.
0: I think it was come his
1: on. wife. I was. His- Are you serious? Is that your theory?
0: I that, that well. That's how I. That's how I'd write the story if I was the author. Oh, all right. Well, fair enough. Is the why white... Plus, how cool would that be? You t- you knock out your husband and you get 10,000 bucks for it. So Well, I mean, not if, too yeah, shabby. I mean,
1: look, if you if you give your husband an ultimatum about softball and then you secretly understand <laughs> that he is taking far too much booze, you know, he's he's stealing far too much booze. I mean, what are you gonna do? Give him another ultimatum? No, the thing you do is you tip off the cops, like or the sheriff. Excuse me, you tip off the sheriff, yeah, and uh, and uh, and blow up your family. I mean, that makes a lot of sense.
0: Does it? That's what. Does a, does that's it? what a good. Uh, does it? No. no. Okay, you're right. My theory is my theory is crap. But here's again, here's the interesting thing about that: forty three percent of all frauds are detected from a tip. And because of that, one of the best things that you can do to not not so much to prevent fraud, but to detect it as quickly as possible is set up easy means by which people can give tips, give anonymous feedback about how frauds are, that frauds are happening at your company. So if you're in a position in your company where you can, uh, where you're, you know, or as an accountant with your job, when you're counseling clients, try to help them set up a fraud tip line. And I think there's actually outsourced companies Mm -hmm. that will set up that you can pay a a fee to every year. And there'll be a unique number for your company where people can narc out their, uh, their coworkers, not not even necessarily for cash just to do it because uh they're because they feel bad feelings about it so so yeah those are the those are the insights i had and some of the some of the lessons that i that i learned anything else you want to add to that caleb nothing comes to mind i mean we, you did a good
1: you did a good job with this one greg i mean we we really covered it and <laughs> uh yeah i mean it's 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 a hard thing to i think i think the two things that stick out for me is the rationalization, like that's the thing that I have a hard time getting my head around. Although I think you, you make a, mm-hmm. you make a compelling argument. You almost convince me that it would. <laughs> yeah, sure. Everyone. Yeah. Yeah. For me, that that's personally something hard. And then, but you're right. The pressure also is something that's not crystal clear, but I mean, we've got, we've got this ex- existential on we, I don't know, maybe that's something. Maybe yeah. we're onto something or maybe we're not. I don't know. Yeah. Who, who knows?
0: I think we, we need to get, we need to get a doctoral student to look into existential. are yeah. as a, as a component of the pressure component of the fraud triangle. So I think we need to do that. So let's, let's uh, contact some colleges. Shall we? I'm down. All right guys, that's it for this episode. A couple things to keep in mind is A, softball leads to asset misappropriation and B, Caleb is very concerned about people who identify too closely with the game of softball. Look,
1: I it yeah, I mean just be careful about how much softball you're playing, okay? Just be careful. So, softball addiction it's real. Watch it's real. out. And also steroids, if you choose to do legal or illegal steroids, you will do tax returns faster. Yeah, that, I think that's Adderall,
0: actually. But, oh. you know, same thing, same thing. <laughs> Very close. Uh, <laughs> Greg, where, where are you on the internet? Where can people find you? So I am on uh, Twitter, uh, at, at Greg Kite. I am on uh, Instagram, at Exposure Drafts. Those are, those are some two great places to find me. You know, and, and LinkedIn, just uh, my name. That's a, a bald guy with glasses and a beard. That's me. What about you, Caleb? Where can people find you out in the internet? I'm
1: on Twitter at CNUQUIST, and my LinkedIn is my full name, Caleb Nuquist. Awesome. Yeah. You ready for some credits? Yeah, take us out, man. All right. Oh, my fraud is written by... Me, Caleb Newquist, and Greg Kite. Our producer is Blake Oliver. Music supervision, sound design, editing, and mixing is by Zach Frank. He's the one who's doing all the work around here. If you like the show, Mm -hmm. leave us a review or share it with a friend. And be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Join us next time for more avarice, swindlers, and scams from stories that will make you say, Oh my
0: fraud. Oh my fraud.